Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. This on? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules... It's a call-in show, and if you want to be on the show, and I certainly hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785, or go to your homepage, which is obviously askbillnye.com. Of course it is. You can also check me out on the Electric World Wide Web to find out about our upcoming guests. And I'm joined today once again by science writer, editor, and really people, dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Oh, greetings, Bill. Salutations. Bill. Corey. You know that I'm a big fan of space. I'm a space nut. I'm a star. You are, nut. you are. Yeah, that's a true fact, I, not a false I am fact. A, maybe even a little obsessed about this stuff. I love stars. I love planets. And I especially love misfits. I love things out in space that don't quite fit into the right category of star, planet, and all those nice, easy terms. So I would love somebody here who could talk about misfits in space. These are. This is where we make discoveries, looking for the things that we don't expect. So you exactly. are in luck, Corey. You are in. I can't even tell you the sort of luck you're in, because today our guest is Jacqueline Faraday. She is a senior scientist and education manager at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, New York. The town's so nice they named it twice, and she studies brown dwarfs and the atmospheres of exoplanets. Ooh. Uh, Jacqueline Faraday, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Jackie? You can absolutely call me Jackie. I only get called Jacqueline when I'm being yelled at. So, yeah, so my mother. Well, we're, we're it's a, you're in a safe place here. We're not gonna we're not gonna call you Jacqueline in that case. We got a couple things. Corey started us off talking about misfits. Now, oh, yeah. I've heard I've heard of stars. I've seen evidence of stars. I, I orbit a star. It's like a regular star. But there are, in my lifetime, people coined the term black hole. People, then when I was a kid, there were neutron stars and there were dwarf stars and white dwarfs. But you're, are you into brown dwarfs? Yeah, brown dwarfs. This has also, it's been coined in your lifetime as well. All of our lifetimes. Oh, wait. So who coined the term brown dwarf? Uh, so the one that gets credit for it is Jill Tarter. Oh, yeah. She's a big SETI researcher. We, we yeah, know yeah. her, uh, us space nuts. 
Yeah. SETI is Search for Extraterrestrial Life, everybody. And so Jill Tarter is very involved in that to this day, but she coined the term brown dwarf. Well, so the thing was that they were theorized in the 1950s or so. It was written on paper before it was actually seen, these objects. And people searched and searched for this idea that if you take the way that stars form. Take it, take it away. There you go. I'm taking you on a journey. You take a big cloud of gas, of, of molecular hydrogen, and you collapse it. And then it fragments off into pieces, and that's how you get a star, right? But what's the smallest star that you can form? And then people started to think, like, okay, 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 okay. But what's the smallest fragment, right? Like, how small can it go? And right, then they're really they're really big stars, and they're smaller stars. So I guess is there something smaller than a star? Yeah. Or what's even the definition of a star? I mean, a star has to be an object where you can get the core hot enough to fuse hydrogen into helium so that you can get a nuclear engine. But there's a okay, limit and to that. And that's why they shine. They shine from all those nuclear reactions inside. Right, the nuclear engine at the core. And um, it's about how hot you are. It is literally about how hot your core is that makes you a star. So the brown dwarfs can't get hot enough. Uh, and it can't because this thing happens when you have a collapse of a big cloud of molecular hydrogen. It fragments, you get your stars, great. So what happens is that the cloud's collapsing and it has no idea how massive it is. The cloud is just collapsing. Gravity's doing its thing. It's bringing right. it together. It's just, it's just a cloud. It doesn't know. It's just a cloud. And then you get to a certain point where gravity is trying to push everything together so that radiation pressure can start so that nuclear engine can come in and start pushing back on gravity. And that's how stars end up reaching hydrostatic equilibrium where the push out from radiation pressure from the nuclear core is balanced with gravity trying to collapse the thing. But that's what we have with our star, right? Exactly. That's how our sun is. And the majority of stars that you're looking at in the nighttime sky um, are living their best lives on what we call the main sequence. So you can think of like, as you go up in temperature, how does the brightness, the intrinsic brightness of a star change? And so the hottest stars are the brightest and the faintest stars are the least luminous. And Okay, so, so if you have a big, massive star, uh, it's got a lot of pressure, a lot of heat, there's a lot of energy coming out. Those are the big, bright ones. Those are like the brightest stars in the sky. Yeah, those are the ones that, I mean, I wouldn't say they're the brightest stars in the sky only because you can be very bright. They're the most intrinsically bright. So it's just an important differentiation, right? Because you can be very, very bright just because you're close. And so what happens is that you've got this collapse that's happening, that the gravity is pushing all the gas together. And for if there's a size like our own sun, it reaches the radius that our sun is at and boom, hydrogen can start fusing. Well done. You got the temperature of that core to 93 (laughs) million degrees. Awesome. You get a big gold star check mark. If well, you get a big white light check mark. You get right? 10 billion years is what you really get. You get 10 cool. right, billion cool. years of... I- I'll take it. Yeah, you should take it, right? Yeah, so that's that's what a regular star like our sun can do. But you can have less mass. And the less mass you have, the tighter you need to push all of that material together in order to get that core to that important temperature of like 93 million degrees. Doesn't that need? Don't you need enough gravity to do that? Well, the collapse is happening. And so, yes, you need for this, for the initiation of the collapse of the giant molecular cloud to happen. And how that happens, 
There's there's multiple theories and ideas. A shockwave from a from a supernova nearby might go off and compress the gas and force it together. So that's one uh, possibility of star formation. You can just accumulate- so a shockwave is a shockwave a wave of hydrogen molecules coming at you. What's in the this shock, no, sh- or is it uh, light photons? A, sh- a shockwave would just be an energetic rush through space. Yeah, think of it as a photon. Um, a bunch of photons, several photons, a few many. dozen. Yeah. yeah. But okay, so the final part of this, you're doing the collapse. Yes. You've got oh, your yeah. star. We're, we're almost at the brown dwarf part. This is my favorite part. Right, we haven't yeah. reached it yet. Um, but what happens is that at some point, you've got such little mass and you're trying to collapse it tighter and tighter. And at some point, you are pushing those electrons so close to each other that they basically say no more. And they halt the collapse. They push back. I always like they to think repel. of it. Yeah, they repel. They're done. They have finished with you squishing them together. Uh, and it's called electron degeneracy pressure. And you reach that level at right around 75 times the mass of Jupiter. And that is the start of where you're not getting your core hot enough. Your core is not hot enough in order to get uh, nuclear burning. So instead, you just cool through your life. And that's All the right, ground so war. Hang on, everybody. I know you, you two are both literate in this. Compare the size of Jupiter to the size of our sun. The sun's about a million Earths worth of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. What's Jupiter compared with the sun? So Jupiter is about 300 times the mass of the Earth. And then you need about 1,000 Jupiters to make the sun. Yeah, there, there you go. go. There you go. 1,000. Right. So uh, but if only, at only 75 Jupiters... Barely uh, 1% of the sun, you can be, get this electron degeneration and you just cool off indefinitely or for a long time. Indefinitely. You just stick around until you're just so this, this blank kind of object. Are these only theorized to exist or is there a way to observe them? Oh, no. My whole career would be over if we couldn't have observed them. Uh, we do observe them in abundance. You've never seen one with your eye. When you go out into the nighttime sky, even though they are all over the place, especially near the sun, you can't see them because they're not hot enough to radiate in enough uh, to, to give off enough light in the wavelengths that our eyes are sensitive to. You have to look in the infrared. So the reason why they took so long to detect after they were theorized, uh, they weren't detected until 1995, is because we didn't have great infrared technology. And so we didn't we weren't able to see them. You had to go to the infrared. So how did you get so interested in brown dwarfs? I love them. I So like Corey, I really like misfits. I really like objects that don't fit. And when I started on the scene with my PhD, uh, brown dwarfs, so it, like they started in 1995 and they were kind of slowly trickling in in numbers. And they were super exciting because they were new. Like they were the new kid on the block. It was these objects that... Um, were kind of like the planets. You could actually study them because they didn't have a host star that you had to block to try and get to their light. Um, and I got into the idea that, number one, they were weird. They were degenerate. And number two, that they were new. They were a new thing. So I started my thesis, my PhD, in 2006. And so at that point, they'd been around for just over a decade. That's it. That's so young. Everybody that was involved in the field was young. So all the other scientists were young because it was a young person's game. So 
do we build a, a satellite, a spacecraft with an infrared instrument on it to look for these things, or can you observe them with infrared instruments on Earth? You can do both, and both have been done. So there are instruments across the globe that have excellent infrared imagers and infrared spectrographs so that you can look at the light that these things are giving off. So I've been to basically all of them. Okay, but, but hold on. there's something I want to know about brown dwarfs. You said there are a lot of them. Now, does that mean in our galaxy there are thousands, millions, billions? How many is a lot? Well, so um, the number of stars in our galaxy probably amounts to like 300 billion or so. And it's debatable how many brown dwarfs there are. And I'm actually on a team that's trying to figure that out to figure out the exact number. So whether or not there's one brown dwarf for every star or one brown dwarf for every six stars is kind of the range that we're in. It's probably closer to one brown dwarf for every six stars or so. But that means... But so there are almost as many brown dwarfs as there are stars and nobody ever saw one until 1995. Yeah, they're totally, they were totally invisible. Do these account for, you know, astronomers, astrophysicists are all kooky for dark matter, dark energy. Does finding the brown dwarfs or determining that they exist, does that help inform this mysterious motion of distant objects that was long time presumed to be dark matter? Or is that nothing to do with this? Yeah, well, I mean, you just came up with an idea that people had when they were searching for brown dwarfs. Uh, before we knew what brown dwarfs were and how many there were, and they were just a theory, uh, people were trying to come up with an explanation for dark matter. And to remind everybody, dark matter is this exotic stuff that astronomers think is pretty dominant throughout the universe and especially dominant in our galaxy. And you can tell by watching the motions of stars both close in and far off from the center of the galaxy and seeing how they rotate. And it appears that we have a halo of matter around the galaxy that we cannot see at all, but seems to have a huge amount of mass um, that's, that's changing so the orbits cool. of stars. It's so it's, cool. Okay, speaking yeah. of orbits, speaking of orbits, you know, this is a call-in show and we have a voicemail Roll that digital recording. Hi, Bill Nye. Would it be possible that an Earth-like planet would orbit a brown dwarf as a moon? Thank you. Goodbye. Uh, oh, could you could cool. a, could a could planet you... orbit a brown dwarf and live its whole life in the very relatively cool glow of a brown dwarf? Yeah. So uh, this brings me to one of my favorite heated discussion. Which is that's uh, a pun, everybody. Heated discussion. Get what she <laughs> see what she did there. It was an unintentional pun, but yes, it was a pun. Yes, of course, the brown dwarf could have an orbiting object around it, the same way Jupiter has uh, various moons around it. It forms the way a star does. It can have a disk. It can have plenty of objects around it. But you might not call it a planet, which is the debate, whether you would call it a moon or whether you would call it binary. That's why the uh, word planet's uh, just really bad to use here, because they want to use it only for objects that are stars. A star can have a planet around it. A brown dwarf can have a companion. Uh, okay, so, so brown uh, do dwarf we, could have... We, do we do something to tick you off there, Jackie? <laughs> a brown dwarf okay. can have a companion. Okay, so yeah. a brown dwarf... <laughs> It's definitely irritating to have to always say that the brown what dwarf would you can't rather just have it be? a world. I just want it to be a world. I just want okay. everything to be okay. a world. You know what? This <laughs> show, we aim to please, could a brown dwarf have an Earth-sized world circling around it? Yes or no? Abs 
absolutely 100%. Let me give you an example. A brown dwarf, <laughs> an object that is barely, barely a star that I'm sure you guys have heard of. It's called Trappist One. Have you heard of Trappist? Oh, that's all I hear about from Corey. He's Trappist One this, Trappist One that. I'm, I'm like, I'm always on, okay, there's like, I'm always about Lambic beers and Trappist monks. And I'm also about Trappist One, which is a very cool star system. It's a small red star that has seven Earth-sized planets going worlds, around. Worlds, worlds, uh, thank you. No, this, is, no, this was a star. We can call it, yeah, but, well, yeah, everything's a world. We'll call them all worlds. You know okay. what? Let's make them all worlds. So, you love Trappist, right? Well, so, I've studied Trappist before Trappist was called Trappist. When it was called Two Mass 2206, whatever, whatever. The reason is because... Oh, yeah, that's back in the show. <laughs> like, it's punk rock days before it sold out. So, here's the thing. That object is a very, very, very late type M dwarf. And okay, that's that's just sort of fancy language for it. it's a cold object. It's low temperature. Yes, it's a star. But if it was just a bit younger, if it was a young object, it's barely a star and it's a brown dwarf, which is why I had studied it. I'd already looked at it. I had tried to figure out how it was moving. And that's why I'm saying to you, when I found out that that object, that object that tiny little thing had seven rocky worlds around it. My mind was blown, not because a couple of those are in the habitable zone. No, it's because if you can pack those objects in there, every object I've ever looked at, every brown dwarf, that's just a little bit less massive than that one, take away 10 Jupiter masses, take away 15 Jupiter masses, not that much. And you've got a brown dwarf right there. It can't fuse hydrogen to helium. So of course, yes, absolutely. Brown dwarfs are probably littered with rocky worlds, with Earth-sized planets. And and you know what? I what? sound I sound angry, but I'm not. I'm just no, I'm very, no. I'm, I'm loving you it. Sound I'm passionate, loving it. passionate. I am very passionate about this. They are so much easier to look at and find a rocky world because the mass difference isn't that bad. Right. If you want to find Earth around the sun, you're looking at a mass ratio that's huge. You know, you've a got a million, million to one. Yeah. Yeah. It's too much. I mean, yes, it's possible and we're hoping to do it. But wouldn't it be better if it was easier to detect it? And so the brown dwarf is a key. It is it is, I think, a holy grail in studying and looking for objects that are circling them. It's a holy grail. Brown dwarfs are the holy grail. Stick around for more science rules after this. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. 
Learn more at funturns50.com. Science Rules is back. You mentioned uh, two magic words earlier on. You mentioned these words, habitable zone. Uh, you know, people got very excited about this Trappist-1 star because it has planets that orbit at what they call the habitable zone, where in theory, it's the right temperature for liquid water. Now, this brown dwarf, it's not quite a star. Could there be a planet around a, uh, I'm sorry, could there be a world around a brown dwarf that gets enough heat from its brown dwarf that it would be warm and balmy and have oceans and things like that? Yes, 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 yes. Yes, absolutely. You just have to be very close to it. You can. And it would be so cool. It would be so weird because it would be an object that's getting the majority of its light. It gets the integrated amount of heat from the star. The integrated amount of flux would be the equivalent of enough to get liquid water bubbling on the surface. That's what you want to know. It's just the integrated. So the world, it could be it could be this crazy thing, like one of the black smokers at the bottom of the ocean here on Earth, right, where. There's no sunlight, but there's heat energy and liquid yep. water and oh, an amazing amount of uh, life there, a huge ecosystem, which I think is a transition, Corey, a transition, Jackie. Oh, I love transitions. To a life question. So can we roll that voicemail digital recording about life? Hi, this is Jordan from Frederick, Maryland. I was wondering, uh, is there any thing that we know about, uh, I know carbon is the main building block for like cells and things. Is there anything else that could be used as a main building block for life that we should be looking for out there in the universe? Thank you. All right. We're throwing you a little bit of a curveball here. Could yeah. there be non-carbon life? Would it get its start from the heat from a brown dwarf? Well, you could get your start from, from anywhere. There's nothing that special that I can tell you that a brown dwarf would create different life, um, what you get out of a brown dwarf would be um, you have more infrared light. That's where the peak of the amount of light that you're getting. So the vegetation might be different because photosynthesis wouldn't proceed in the exact same way because it's not going to get the same amount of optical light or UV light. It's going to be dominated by infrared light. So you could have totally different vegetation, but um, any aspect of life that I certainly ever consider is carbon-based life forms. It is totally possible that there's something else. A lot of astronomers or astrobiologists, I say, think about something that's close to carbon in terms of how it reacts with other elements. And so maybe silicon, maybe a silicon-based life form is possible. Um, and th it's a fun thought experiment to go down this road as to what it would look like because, um, and I have certainly done this over a drink with many chemist friends to talk about what the different kinds of species could exist with different elements on the periodic table. But there's nothing conclusive and it's kind of hard to tell what their biosignatures would be. What would they, how would they breathe or exhale? What would the vegetation be like? So you're a booster for brown dwarfs, right? But you're a booster for other things. Like you're doing a, a lot to make science, technology, engineering, math more diverse, right? Bring more people into astronomy. Is that right? So, yes, I have a um, sort of like a pillar of my career goals is to work on the diversification of STEM in the most active possible way that I can. Uh, and I, I got to say, when I look at my colleagues at... Uh, pick a place, Jet Propulsion Lab or uh, Cape Canaveral. There's a lot of guys of my ancestry, uh, 
and they're mostly guys, mostly. So you're working to change that. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever walked into a conference, the American Astronomical Society is an excellent example where you get thousands of astronomers, astronomy educators, planetarium people all in one room for a giant conference that happens twice a year, or at least it happened in person twice a year uh, before COVID. The first reaction I always have when I walk into the conference hall is it is extremely white. This is not what my neighborhood in Harlem looks like. This is not what the population of the United States looks like. This is not reflective of 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 the, the world. Of the world. Of, of yeah, Earth. It, it's it's really striking because I mean I I go to those same astronomy conferences. I've been doing that for a number of years, and I've seen the gender balance change a lot. I mean, there's been a huge movement of of women into astronomy, but the color of the room has barely budged. You know, the the racial and ethnic diversity has been very stubborn to change. Why do you think that is? So I, there's a lot of boundaries that have been put up. And uh, the, the boundaries from the basic level, uh, there's, the, there's the standardized test that you have to take to get into grad school. It's called the- That's uh, the, uh, the GRE, huh? The GRE, yes. And the GRE is prohibitive. It's already been looked at in detail uh, by various societies to, to decide whether or not it actually- disproportionately keeps out women as as well as accidental cultural references in it or something like that was a big criticism of iq tests i remember yes it is it's also there is a method to how the gre works i don't know when you guys took the gre or if you took the gre but man that test does not do well depending on what kind of learner you are it's a multiple choice test. And I'm, there's two different tests. There's the general exam and then there's the subject exam. The subject exam is a multiple choice test, which I don't even remember how many, maybe a hundred questions, all related to physics problems. Everything from classical mechanics, electromagnetics and quantum mechanics, statistics. Thermodynamics, maybe. Thermodynamics. Thermodynamics, sure. All of that. And it's multiple choice. And they try and get you by giving you a multiple choice and you have to try and get the problem as close you can to finishing it. Uh, And then to save time, because it's also a matter of how many you answer and how many you answer correctly, you have to guess. You have to make an educated guess. That is one of the the, the key uh, strategies to taking that test. And it is not the way for many learners. It certainly didn't work for me. And I should back- Well, I was gonna say, it's it's also striking that Every study that I've seen, when you look at SAT scores, but especially at GRE scores, and then you look at how people actually did academically and, and how they were, you know, were they, were they actually creative researchers? Did they do innovative work? There's very little correlation between the GRE scores and what people actually do in their professional lives. And you, and talk, to, lives. Uh, you talk to people who hire innovators, who hire engineers, people to solve new problems. They do not look necessarily for people with the highest scores or highest grades. They look for people that got a little something, something. So what happened to you, Jackie? What happened? So my background is a bit mixed in that uh, my my mother's Puerto Rican and my father is just your run-of-the-mill, wonderful, lovely, but generic white guy from St. Louis, Missouri. I had a lot of interactions with my mom's family when we were young, and um, they were discriminated against 
uh, as young girls, when my mom was little, they didn't want me to speak Spanish. They would have rather me passed for that generic white person that you could see at a conference. And it always bothered me. It bothered me from day one when I started to realize it was happening. And so for me, it's always been something I've noticed. And as I grew up in the New York area, I also was somebody that kind of struggled in various aspects of school and then got better, but only because I just kept trying and working at things because I was passionate. I wanted to do it. And what I've noticed, and this is, and I hope people listening to this hear this, especially those that are interested in helping in STEM, is that women of color, men of color that want to enter the field of astronomy, they want to enter STEM fields, they're partially kept out because they don't have the right coursework or they don't have that traditional uh, preparation to be able to take the tests, to be able to show that they can go to the blackboard and do the science. And so the only ones that do get left are the ones that have such a passion that's so strong. It feels like they're in the tail of the Gaussian distribution. And it's so upsetting because even they will get held out because they don't have the coursework. And so I just want- So what, if you were a queen of the forest, if you were driving, what do you want to change? I want to change people's vision on what makes a good scientist. What you need is not somebody that goes to the blackboard and solves the problem. What you need is somebody that show. You can teach anybody that. You can teach them how to do that. You need to have the passion. It's not that hard to find them that are out there. Don't push them away. And then they will motivate that next generation that ha- didn't have quite that same bubbled up passion. So specifically, two things specific. Would you ban the GRE? Do you recommend or do you want 100%. to rewrite it? No, okay. I want it gone. I don't want that test anywhere near anyone. It's happening in astronomy, at least. In astronomy, it's even come down as a recommendation from the American Astronomical Society to get rid of it. Uh, as And many grad schools are coming into this. And I'm one of the people that will push my, the undergraduate students that I work with, that I work hard with, that I mentor, that I champion, I push them towards those schools that do not have the GRE. Uh, And so if you want me to recommend your university for my stellar undergraduates that come from the diverse pool of students in New York City, then get rid of the GREs. Don't ask them to give you them. And then I'll put you on the list of schools that I recommend for my students uh, because I want to see my students go to a school that also recognizes this problem. Now, you you just mentioned mentoring. Um, I got to say, so you're, you're an active mentor yourself. Yes, I'm an adjunct at the City University of New York in the doctoral program. And so mm-hmm. I'm an advisor for a number of graduate students. And then I have undergrads and high school students that work with me. And the other program that we have that's actually really important to this is we have a master's program. And so if people are listening to this. If you want to be a teacher and teach science and reach students that are from in-need schools in New York City, The American Museum of Natural History has a program for you, and I'm a professor in that program, and I teach the space sciences aspect to it. And what we're doing with this program is you come with us and we train you for 18 months to get certified as a teacher in the New York area. And right now you can actually teach beyond New York. And we help you find a job as a teacher. And then we ask that you teach within an in-need school for four years. We're right now on our cohort nine, and there's 18 teachers or so in our cohorts. 
Um, and now we're supplying the New York area and we're reaching these schools. I have personally taught the teachers that are teaching the middle and high school students. I reach out to them. I meet their students. I find out who wants to do STEM from these schools in New York that have so much potential for supplying the next generation of STEM professionals that come from the diverse pool and look like more of the world that we live in. Here's the thing. We have the whole universe to study, which means there are way too many questions. The universe has supplied us with billions upon billions upon billions of objects. And who makes the decisions about what to study and what path to go on? That's why it's important to have a diverse number of people out there. Because if you have the same people from the same background, always being the ones at the plate, controlling the telescopes, making the decision of what funding goes to what instrument, you are literally deciding the fate of the questions that gets asked about the universe through the lives lived of a certain kind of people. Why not diversify it and allow in all of the lived experiences? I, I was curious, did, was there a mentor who was particularly influential in you to you who kind of brought you here? Um, I didn't know I was allowed to be a scientist. I seriously didn't when I was young. It wasn't put in front of me as like, this is... When you look seems, at a picture of scientists, all you see are men, right? I, I saw men. And, and you know what's, what's, what's even worse that I've only just come to realize now is that you learn about fundamental physics and fundamental chemistry and fundamental earth science in all of these classes that you have to take in, say, high school. And the fundamental laws are named after men. And then you learn their stories. So Newton's law, Kepler's law, Boyle's law. Fermi's paradox. This is not something that I take lightly. I, I have thought about it so much that now every time I say a fundamental law, I'm reminding myself, oh, this was part of the problem. I knew the name. I identified with the person and I never saw my identity in there. I never saw it. And so I and you can't change that. Right. Like we're not changing the fundamental laws of physics. You have to discover new fundamental laws, or that's it, right? Like, I, I can't redo Newton's laws. That's what they are. Einstein's right, they're doing little things. They're, they're, they're naming, like, there's a, an observer, a major observatory that's being named after Vera Rubin. Or yes. there's a Or the Europeans are sending a, a rover to Mars that's named after Rosalind Franklin. So, I mean, these are, these are incremental things, and I think they're significant, but they're still not at the level of what you're talking about. Have you had experiences with people that you've mentored? Are there examples that you can give us where things went really right? Yeah, what uh, mentorship can do. Yeah. So my, my very first graduate student is defending in one week and one day. Her name's Eileen Gonzalez. She defends next Friday, and I get chills when I say it because I am so excited for Eileen to defend her PhD thesis on understanding substellar atmospheres. And Eileen is an ex excellent example where Eileen is black and Hispanic, and she is going to be, when she defends, only the second black female to defend a PhD from CUNY, from the City University of New York. And she joins the ranks of only 100 black women that have ever received a PhD in physics. That's so cool. That, that topic that you just mentioned, I think really- Substellar atmospheres? What the she's heck is that? She's studying, if I'm translating this correctly, she's studying weather on brown dwarfs. I mean, she's studying a very, let's say a non-standard, non-well-known, but very cool topic. And this is the kind of thing that happens when you break from groupthink, when you start being 
a little more diverse in how you're approaching problems and who you're inviting into this world that hadn't been very inviting for a long well, time. Well, I think it's also the way she approaches science, the way that she um, tackles problems is different than the way that I do or I've seen my other grad students do. Uh, she truly brings something to the table that's unique and her resolve, her resiliency. Um, she had trouble getting into grad school in part because of that GRE. That GRE was a problem. And frankly, she came up to me at a booth at an American Astronomical Society conference where I was there as the liaison for the Committee for the Status of Minorities in Astronomy. And she kind of came up to me and she expressed with what I saw in her as passion for the field. She wanted to know about the weird objects. She wanted to know about the outliers. And it took no more than one conversation with her, one conversation with her, and she had told me she had struggled with getting into grad school. And I said, you're with me. I'll take you. And I, I definitely looked at her as somebody that I wanted to champion. I wanted to see her succeed. And I was going to do whatever I could. And frankly, she has done so well. She is defending Next Friday. And she has won a very prestigious Next Stage grant, the 51 Pegasi Heising Simons Fellowship. It's extremely prestigious and competitive in astronomy, and she's taking it to Cornell University. So I could not be prouder Ooh. of this young woman that I do that think awesome. will change the face of astronomy and will lead next generation of Black women in STEM. So if I had had to use a transcript as the rationale for my decision, I would have missed because that test is... A problem. If a black student comes to you and says, I want to do science, it is unbelievable that they're there in the first place because they probably had to climb over a fence to get to you because of the obstacles we know are there. So just them showing up and saying those words is a passion that I don't know how to quantify for you. It is already enough. That's the passion. You don't have to scream like I do. That's not what Eileen did. <laughs> I saw it. I knew it. I understood it. Science Rules will be right back. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Science Rules. Something I want to help our listeners understand uh, it's just how cool this topic is that that you're studying and that Eileen is studying. This idea of like weather patterns on brown dwarfs, is that basically what she's doing? Understanding substellar atmospheres, yeah. Okay, translate that Oh, so substellar, I just, studying? I heard you say it. it means smaller than a star. Is that substellar? Yeah, substellar, yeah. Oh, okay. aka brown dwarfs. <laughs> There's weather, they got brown canes, what do they have? How does that work? Yeah, so crazy, I mean, not with rain, not with water rain, but with clouds that are composed of 
corundum. If you know corundum, I'm sure you know corundum. That's basically rubies? Rubies and sapphires. So corundum is the material that's like a precursor to rubies and sapphires. Um, it is the, the the big name for put the right impurities and you get sapphires and you get rubies. So what Eileen has been doing is she's been looking at, if you look at the spectra of these brown dwarfs, what we try and de- de- decipher from them is what their clouds are made of. Are they clouds of iron? Are they clouds of quartz? Are they clouds of rust? Are they clouds? And we've been asking all of these questions, and it's part of her thesis. Are there clouds there? You can do all of this just just from looking at the the light from a brown dwarf. You can not only see that there are clouds, but you can see what the clouds are made of, and you're reconstructing weather on them. Am yeah, I yeah. summarizing correctly? Because that's I mean, pretty wild. That, it is the complicated things that we do. Yes, um, Eileen is working on a static view of them. So the weather patterns isn't quite what she's done, but my whole research group does do the weather patterns. Eileen is the one that's looking at the data and saying, okay, this is what the clouds are made of. They're made of this stuff and this stuff and this stuff. Corey, do you hear that? I, I do. I don't think I'm hearing the weather on a brown dwarf. I think I'm hearing something that's like right here. It's like- It's terrestrial it's like, weather. It's like, yeah, it's terrestrial lightning. It suggests a lightning round. That's um, right, because of Jackie, the thunder. are you ready for a lightning round? There is lightning on brown dwarfs, by the way. So There is? Oh, yeah. Lightning. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so hold, wait, we whoa, might, whoa, okay, whoa, hold on. We need hold to know on. that just for a second before so we got the lightning round. Can we see, is this theoretical or you've observed lightning? My goodness. So yes, right now it's theory with the potential of some observations that might be implying that there's lightning. But we think that we're studying these clouds and we might be seeing potentially some of the effects of what lightning might do. And so I have wanted to actually take our research and do it similar to what gets done over a volcano, where you know you'll get these clouds that um, exist over a volcano and then lightning will strike. Uh, and Because some of the material that's in the brown dwarf clouds is similar to what comes out of a volcano, and then the lightning hits and changes the composition of the structure. Like it'll change a silicate and it'll make it more reflective or something. And that is what we think we see maybe in some of the features that we're looking at in these brown dwarfs. So it's a really cool aspects of research. There's a woman at St. Andrews. Her name is Christiana Helling. And if you get her on here, all she will want to talk about really is lightning in brown dwarfs and lightning in the atmospheres of these objects. Before we go back to lightning round, I have to ask you one more weird question, because this is an idea that some brown dwarfs might be green dwarfs, that there could be life floating in the clouds of brown dwarfs because they're warm and wet and okay yes no maybe interesting idea ridiculous idea what do you think there have been some ideas that are very reminiscent of a carl sagan idea the thing is that on the colder brown dwarfs the colder ones um they do have clouds of water ice and so there have been these ideas that are thrown out there Yeah, yeah, yeah. Water ice, water ice clouds. I've actually worked on this with some theorists and some other observers to try and look at the coldest brown dwarfs and see the signatures of those water ice clouds. So yes, there is this idea out there. It doesn't hold great weight and we can't do much about it right now. There's not a lot that I can look for as a signature of whatever those objects would be floating in the clouds of these objects. I mean, you'd have to come up with some sort of biosignature that they would give off that we would be able to detect and tease out. 
uh, outside of the cloud features. And so I'll just go with a fantasy land of it. It's a better thing to talk about over a drink than to try to build an observing program around No, it. no, but here's the thing. Just thinking like that, just considering that lead will lead to some other discovery. A hundred percent, yes. Yeah, I just yes. say all the time, when you start pondering yes. life elsewhere and where we all came from and whether or not we're alone, you just start asking cool questions that lead to these extraordinary discoveries that now we take for granted. Of course, they're black holes. Of course, they're brown dwarfs. Of course, there's whatever. The idea that we didn't know that other galaxies existed until 1929, that still blows my that mind. That is, they just looked like stars. That is amazing. They didn't okay. know. Yeah, absolutely. They didn't know. Okay. Back to lightning. Once again, once again, picking up where we left off, a bolt of lightning has been heard. It is not on a brown dwarf. It has produced an audible but not an observable signature, which is thunder. And knowing that it is the lightning round. If you weren't studying brown dwarfs, what would you be studying? I would probably be, I like the idea of studying the ocean. I might be an oceanographer, but I would also want to be a geologist. I want to study the rocks. What is your favorite constellation? I have multiple, and so it goes back and forth. I just said this today, so I have to stick with it. It's the scorpion. It has such a beautiful shape. If people haven't gone outside and looked for the scorpion, they should. It's one of the Zodiac constellations. It's got a good head. It's got a straight hook at its bottom. It's got a stinger. It's, it's got a stinger at the end. It's got a stinger. It's got Antares, the red supergiant. And if you go out right now and you just look to the left, you see Jupiter and Saturn. Boom. If you could go anywhere in the solar system, where would you go? Super easy. I can totally answer that. Enceladus. I am an absolute total fangirl for Enceladus, which is one of the moons of Saturn. And the reason, which I'll give you in a 10 second pitch, is because it has geysers going off that are just probably ejecting material from that underwater ocean that I want to see and I want to experience it. So yeah, I'm going to Enceladus. Who is your favorite scientist of all time? So I'm going to go with Jocelyn Burnell in part because she's one of the original discoverers, co-discoverers of pulsars, spinning neutron stars. And um, she got passed over for a Nobel Prize when that Nobel Prize was given to those that did discover pulsars. And I, I love her. I love her attitude about science. I love what she's done in science. And so she's a shero of mine. Do you going to have cool names for brown dwarfs? I mean, HD 8673, 2MO35, uh, 0355. Those are good names. Don't get me wrong. Are you oh, going to have cool names? I co-run a citizen science project. It's called Backyard Worlds, colon, Planet Nine. And we have had like 150,000 volunteers working with us. And our very first discovery it happens people flip through data, try and find an object that's moving. And I encourage anybody listening to this to go on to backyardworlds.org, sign up, check us out. We're a really cool citizen science project. But we started naming the discoveries by the people that discovered them. And our very first object that we published, um, we were calling it Bob Star because a guy named Bob that was a science teacher in Tasmania sent it to us. And we were super excited. So we called it after him. Officially, I don't have a good name for you, but Bob Star. I like Bob Star. If you could visit a brown dwarf, Jackie, is there yeah. anything you'd take you'd need to pack? Yeah, Woo. so you can, get, you, can, you can bring three things along with you. What do you bring? I'm bringing a spectrograph. <laughs> sure. Because I want to be able to take the light and break it up and see what's in it. Um, I probably want to bring a mass spectrometer so I can study the um, what's on the brown dwarf. 
Uh, and I'm going to bring a shovel, a geology mm. hammer, geologist hammer. We're not going to be able to land and dig up the rock. I'm, I'm going to have to take the gases and do something with them. So maybe I don't want a mass spec. Uh, I definitely want a spectrometer. Uh, I want a camera, a really good high resolution camera. And I want that camera to have an infrared um, detector on it so that I can really study what's going on. And then I'm going to bring my best friend because I want somebody with me to enjoy. There you go. Okay. Okay. And, and just to be clear, we're providing the spacesuit because I know you didn't request one, but I yeah, think yeah, you yeah, probably yeah, want yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. You're going to provide You want to be dressed properly. Yeah. And yeah. the tang. Yeah. Whatever it yeah. might be. Uh, this has just been cool, Jackie. Thank you so much. Thanks for You're taking welcome. the time. Our guest today has been Jacqueline Faraday. She is a senior scientist and education manager at my beloved American Museum of Natural History in New York, New York. And remember, when it comes to discovering new things in outer space, science rules. If you like Science Rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show, helps us provide you with the kind of show you want to hear. So thank you. Be sure to look at my socials to find out who our upcoming guests will be. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell, the very same Corey S. Powell. Hey, Casey Halford, a different guy, mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, everyone, Science, Science Rules! rules. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore. Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.